How you guys doing? Is that me making noises? No. Is it, is it, you know what it is? I made fun of him first service. He got it right. Look, we got the, we're, we're in now. Okay. You guys still tired from like the time change stuff? Is that what's wrong with you? That's what's wrong with me. And it's snowing and it's March and it's late. And we still live in Ohio. So here we are. Hey, if you're watching online, we're happy you're with us as well. Don't want to ignore you. Uh, we're closing out Nehemiah today. So if you're first time-ish here, we've been going through the story of Nehemiah. Uh, it's our last one today, uh, so I'm excited about that. I wanted to start this morning, though, uh, by speaking to you as a parent. Uh, so I always feel like obligated to uh, like give like the the asterisks, the disclaimers to whatever I say. So like I love my children, you know. I want you guys to know that, and I'm sure you do too. You love your children, you like them, you enjoy them, uh, you're th- grateful for them, um, you know. Uh, really important to your life, but we also, we all know that they are really, really, really annoying. Um, So I, my situation, and this is the result of my choices, I know, but I have a teenager and a two-year-old in the same house. And that's, I like zero out of five stars, do not recommend kind of a thing, just so you know, um, the amount and the the, the width of my problems, the, the variety of the Issues that we have in our house are just crazy. Um, you know, with the two-year-old, uh, if I give her the wrong color cheese or the wrong color cup, we have a fight. You know, so I'm fighting over the color of cups. Uh, for the teenager and, and soon-to-be teenager, um, we fight over, you know, the fact that it's 18 degrees and they won't wear a coat. Uh, it, okay, so anybody who has middle scores, did you know that they don't wear coats? They don't wear coats at all. Middle schoolers don't wear coats. I don't even know why they make coats for the size of a kid that is middle schooler. There's no market there because they don't wear coats. They don't. Um, and I, and I, you know, we fight about that because it's, hey, it's 18 degrees. You're going to go stand outside for 10 minutes? Don't care, Dad. Cool. Okay. You can freeze. Um, but I'm, I'm dealing with these kinds of things constantly. And if you're a parent, so are you. Uh, but here's something I've discovered. And, and like, so listen, I'm, I'm kind of on... Uh, I, I, I'm on team parent where I like acknowledge that the children like are the problem, right? We got to like fix these, these things. But like I have to acknowledge that a lot of times when like I'm in a situation with my kid that, that the way that situation feels has a lot to do with how I came into it, not just how they went into it. I have to be fair here that I know the, like when my two-year-old says, you know, I try to hand her a cup and she says, not the, not the Lello one. And then I have to try, what about the blue one? What about the purple one? What about the green one? Like, and you're just going down the line and then you get back to the yellow one and now she wants the yellow one and she didn't want the yellow one at first, but now we're back to that. Like, when I'm okay, that's whatever. You know, we'll just go through the whole rainbow and whatever you want is fine. But when I'm overtired or overstimulated or just kind of frustrated already, that's a, that situation's way different, right? I'm, I'm, I'm way more frustrated. I'm way more annoyed. It's not as fun. Um, same thing with my teenagers. Now they're bringing in their own set of attitudes into every conversation that we have. But I have to acknowledge that my attitude coming into a situation very much shapes and flavors that situation and then affects how we are coming out of it. Right? Now, even if you're not a parent, you have this, right? You can acknowledge that what you bring into a situation, the attitude you have, the disposition that you have coming in, greatly affects how you feel when you're there and greatly affects the outcome as you leave that situation, right? It's not just the situation, it's what you brought into it. We all have this. Same situation, only variable is your attitude, and it creates vastly different outcomes. So, here's what I want to talk about today. Uh, I want to talk about the Bible. Uh, The ancient sacred literature of Christianity, right? Now, I don't know what you think of the Bible. I don't know. I don't know what your philosophy is. I don't know how uh, you've been raised to think about it. I don't know all that. But what I do know is that what's true of my interactions with my kids is true of your interactions with the Bible. 
that your disposition going into reading the Bible and interacting with the Bible greatly affects your feelings and thoughts while you're doing it and will greatly affect your actions coming out. It's not just you viewing the Bible, it's what you bring in when you start to read the Bible. It's the attitude, the assumptions, the disposition, everything about you that you bring into the Bible greatly affects how you read it and greatly affects what you do with it when you're done. So here's the question. What should our disposition be when we approach the Bible? Christian, what what should your attitude be when you crack open that book or you open up that app on your phone? What should your attitude be as you approach the Bible? That's the question I want to answer today. So uh, we're closing out our series in the story of Nehemiah today. Uh, the whole story kind of led up to this, this wall being built, right? That was like the big kind of climax of the story. You hit this apex, the wall's built, and we hit that last week. But we kind of acknowledged the whole time that the story, it like wasn't about, you know, stones and walls and gates and all that. That's like not the point of what was happening. The point was something, it was, it was the, the flourishing of the city and the people inside of the walls, not the walls themselves. So we're going to see today... Uh, the story we're going to look at happens a couple of days after they finish the walls. So last week we saw the walls were finished. It was October 2nd. We're going to pick the story back up in October 8th. It tells us what the date is. Uh, so just a couple days later. So you can imagine you know, when the walls finally got finished. It doesn't say this. I feel like they probably had a rib- ribbon cutting ceremony. You know, they're cracking a bottle of champagne across the... I don't know how they did. I don't know all the stuff they did. But it was fun. It was exciting. It was great. And then a couple days later, this is what happens in the city. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, we'll pick it up in verse 2. So on October 8th, Ezra, the priest, brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and the women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. So here's what happens. Everybody's gathered. The whole city comes out uh, to this gathering and they get out the book of the law, the Torah, um, which basically for, for that, like that's their scriptures, right? That's what they have. Um, it's included in ours, but we have more than them because we're, you know, we're alive later than them. But that's what they had at the time. So this, they pull out the scriptures for, from their perspective and this guy named Ezra reads it. Uh, so what I want to do, I want to look at a couple of verses here and see how they react to it. Like what happens to them while this this thing is being read. And I want to look at how they act, and then I want to ask the question, like what did they have to bring in to get to that? what, what, What attitudes, what predispositions did they have to create what happens here as... Uh, the book of the law is being read. So let's just make some observations. These first two verses that we just read. Number one, uh, it says that the Bible was read from early morning until noon, which means that he like read the Bible for six hours. That's crazy, right? Like that's a long time. Now, every single pastor that I read and listened to this week, like there was an oblig- obligatory joke that it has to be made. Like, Okay, so are you ready? Here it is. You have to laugh. Aren't you thankful for how long I preach? If six hours. But like seriously though, <laughs> um, six hours. And I just like when I read stuff like that, I just want to say, wow, that's crazy. Like let's just acknowledge that's a long time. Um, and they're like, they're like into it even more. I feel like there's some miracles happening here that we're not acknowledging. They didn't have a kids ministry. The kids are in the room here. Like, that's nuts, man. That, that makes me more grateful for our kids ministry because if we had 100 kids up here, it would be a different room, right? Um, so they've got this. But, but now notice, notice the people. Um, two observations. They show up. Like, that's why they were there, right? They, the, the stated purpose was they're going to pull out the book of the law and they're going to read it. So people came for that. They showed up for it. And then two, it says that they listened closely. They were leaning in. They really wanted whatever was going to be offered there. So that's two things we can see out the gate. They showed up and they were listening closely. Let's drop down to verse 5. Every verse I skipped has names I don't want to read because they're too hard to pronounce, just so you know. If you're like, why does pastor skip around? I'm just trying to not sound like an idiot. Uh, Verse 5. Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people, 
Then they saw him open the book and they all rose to their feet. Verse six, then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, amen, amen, as they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces on the ground. So again, just looking at the reactions of people, they're, they're interacting with the Bible here and um, they rose to their feet when, when it was being read. They, they, they rose up. Uh, they said amen twice. I don't know what they, amen, amen. They, they, they said they were reacting verbally to the word being read. Um, they lifted their hands. So it was a physical reaction too. Their hands went up. There was something about that posture that mattered. And then they bowed with their faces to the ground and they worshiped. All of those things happen while the Bible is being read. And then uh, last observation I want to make is drop down to verse nine. Then Nehemiah, our boy, uh, the governor, uh, Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So they're crying, and like weeping. They're like ugly crying. It's not like tear. It's like they, they can't control the emotion that's hitting them as the Bible's being read. So just back up and look at this whole thing here. There's a reverence for the word of God right there. They're, they're standing in respect. There's worship. Their hearts seem to just be lifted to God. They're saying amen. They're raising their hands. There's submission that, that bow down thing, that's a posture of submission to what's being read. And then there's like an emotional reaction to it. They're just, they're just broken up by what's being read. Actual tears. So here's the question. How's that happen? Like, do you ever, you don't have to tell anybody you do this, but do you ever sit here and like... <laughs> Do you ever watch other people in church? You're not supposed to, I know, you're not supposed to. But like you guys over here, you have it easy because you can look across a little bit and you can pretend you're looking at me, but you're not, you're looking at somebody else. And you guys have it kind of, you have to side-eye people here. So you guys have it a little harder. You gotta do the little thing here. But like, do you ever watch other people? Like maybe when we're, when we're doing uh, worship, do you ever watch people and see that they're having like an emotional reaction to what's happening? And does it, if you're like me, do you ever have that thing where you're like, wow, like, What's going on inside of them? Like how, how, how'd they do that? Like what, what, what thing in their heart is happening right now that's causing that? And then if you're like me, the other question is like, why am I not moved like that right now? Like what, and then you have to ask like, is something wrong with me? Am I missing something? Is there something like off inside of my soul that I'm not having the same experience that they're having? If, if you're like me, you have all these kind of thoughts when you see someone else maybe having a more, what seems like in the moment reaction to what's happening when you kind of feel like you're maybe one step out of it. And then once you start having those thoughts, you're like twice removed, right? Because you're like, you feel like an observer almost, right? Do you ever have that weird feeling like I'm here, but I'm not here. I'm watching all you other people have this thing and I'm just kind of sitting here and I'm watching it happen, not as a participant, but almost as a spectator. And that's what I want to look at this. And I want to ask the question, how in the world did this happen? He just read the Bible and all this stuff happened. Like, that's crazy. That's a lot of stuff. And I'm not going to do like that old school preacher thing. Like, we should have some more respect. Why don't you guys stand where you're the word? Like, I'm, not, I'm not after all the specifics here. I'm just after like what was in their heart for all that to happen. How did they get there? So, again, your attitude going in greatly affects your feelings and, and what happens to you while you're there, and then it will greatly affect the outcome when you leave. So the attitudes and assumptions that you bring in, let's, let's talk about how you could view the Bible, how, how you could view the Bible. There's a, a variety of ways you could view the Bible. We'll start on one end of the spectrum and we'll kind of work our way uh, to the other. Let's say we'll go way over here and you could view the Bible as complete myth. 
right? You probably know some people who, who view the Bible as just made up stories on the same level as like Homer's Iliad. It's just a bunch of stories that are made up and that's what it is, right? So you could view it that way. Um, now one little, maybe, you could go maybe half a step further and say that it, not only are they made up stories, but they're made up and they have like, like the people who made them up had bad motives for making them up and they're like trying to like assert their authority on the world and it's kind of jacked up. So you could really view it. I would say this is a pretty negative light to view the Bible. And if you approach the Bible with that attitude, it's going to have you have, cause you to have certain outcomes uh, when you read it. Now, a couple steps over from there, you could, you could have the stance that the Bible is like an attempt at history, Right? You could, you could approach the Bible and say, hey, these are some guys who are trying to write down some stuff that happened and maybe you know, they embellished with the spiritual a little bit or the supernatural a little bit and they exaggerated a little bit, but they tried and some of the stuff that we read in there actually happened, but maybe not the way they said. So that could be your view. You could maybe take one step over. I don't know if it matters if it's a little bit over here or not, but like this one would be less about history and more about like you could view the Bible as an attempt I don't know, like as a moral framework for life, like a, like a set of rules to live by. You could view it like somebody was trying to write something that told us all how to live, right? And you could view it that way. And you could say, hey, there's some stuff in there that's like good, you know, love your neighbor, don't judge, stuff like that. We'd like, like, we're cool with that. But then most of it, we're gonna go, oh, I don't know, good try, but no, right? So that could be your view. Now, as you keep going, there's gonna be a really important line here that you're gonna cross. Because so far... The opinion, if you're on this side, the opinion is that, that men wrote it. But the moment you cross this line on this side, uh, you're going to say that God had something to do with it. Okay? That's a, big, that's a big jump. Like if you're here and you're like, just people wrote that thing, and it's just, just, just ideas from men, that's all of this. But the moment you cross this line, you're saying, oh, something supernatural about this thing. God had something to do with the writing of this book. So now you're over here. And there's a lot of things that could mean too. So I would say the first one is that you believe it like contains the divine, um, that, that there are pieces of what's written in there that kind of glow, that kind of have that eternal spark. And you believe that some of it uh, definitely like came from heaven, but maybe not all of it. And, you're, and your job then is to kind of try and figure out which is which. Uh, so that could be a stance you have, complicated one. Uh, you come here and you're gonna hit this one. If you grew up in church, it's probably the one. Um, you would say that the Bible is inspired by God. God breathed, right? You're, you're, and if you're here, you're like, there's a verse somewhere. It's in Timothy, I think. And it talks about the, the all, you know, scriptures inspired by God, breathed by God. And you would believe that God worked through the writers of the Bible. Uh, not like they went into a trance and then, then they woke up and there, was, there it is. Like not that. Um, but God used their personalities and their writing styles and, and, and where they were at in culture. And he used all of that to, to work through them. It still shines through. Their personalities and stuff are still there. But God's hand was on what was written. Um, then if you, if you take one step further here, you kind of do believe the trance thing. It's almost like the golden tablets came down from heaven. And this was God. Like, it's not God's word. It's God's words. You believe every single detail um, is, is from heaven. Uh, and that very, very specific, every bit of it was, was God down to the periods. Then I'll give you one more. Uh, and I joked in first service, none of them are here so I can make fun of them. And if they are here, they're leaving after this. Anyway, they probably already left because I wasn't, I wasn't reading the King James Version. So if it, you could be here, a, a King James only person, if you've ever talked to them, and if you don't know what the King James Version Bible is, it's kind of the Bible that has the these and the thous and the thys in it. Um, they, some of them would actually believe that the, it's not just that um, the writers of the Bible were inspired. They actually believe that the translation was inspired so that that translation like, is perfect, um, which is wild, but we won't get into that. Um, so you are somewhere. You, you're somewhere on this spectrum. Uh, I don't know. I don't know where, but you're somewhere. Now you can see, now that we've kind of looked at all of these, you can see how the assumptions you have coming in are going to greatly affect how you read it when you're reading it. 
right? Because if you're way over here and you're reading it, that, that's going to have one kind of attitude and it's going to produce one kind of thing as you're reading the Bible. But if you're over here, it's very different how you're going to feel and what you're going to react to and how you're going to think about what you read, right? So the assumption coming in greatly affects your experience while you're there. So you have to, you have to mentally say, hey, hey here's, here's where I am. Now, going to make some assumptions. I know there's no King James only people. I'm also going to cut the, cut the end off over here. Uh, I, I doubt we have anybody who just outright believes the entire Bible is a myth um, and maybe mildly hostile towards it. I doubt it. Maybe you're trying to date a girl and you're pretending to be a Christian. Uh, good job so far. Um, I'm, I'm praying against you <laughs> for her sake and yours, actually. Um, so we're going to assume you're not here. Um, maybe you're somewhere in here. And maybe, maybe this is a fluid thing too, right? We can't just like put things in box. Maybe you're like, yeah, man, like it seems like there's some stuff here. I have some questions. Maybe where you're at is you're looking at that line, that line from I believe people wrote it to I believe maybe God had something to do with it. And maybe that's like a really curious line for you. Maybe you're looking at it going, hmm. There's something about the book. There's something about what's written in it. There's something about the story. There's something about the people in it. There's something about that Jesus guy. Uh, I feel like maybe... God had something to do with it. And you're, maybe you're kind of like, ah, I feel like I want to do it, but I have some hesitancies. Maybe that's you. But more than likely, let's say the vast majority of us live on this side where you at least believe God had something to do with it. I'm also going to assume center mass is with the God inspired it because I believe most people grew up with that. Um, so I probably mostly want to speak to you over here. You believe God had something to do with the writing of the Bible. Um, now that by itself, do you realize how wild that is? If you're sitting here going, yeah, I think God had something to do with the writing of this book. You're saying that the creator God of the universe, the one who breathed out stars, wrote DNA, that he like at the very least inspired some things to be written down that he wanted us to know. Like, that's a crazy thing to say, that the, that the creator of all things stooped down and said, hey, you guys need to know some things. That's, like, that's an honor and a privilege and like a glory-filled thing to open that book up if it has the divine as a part of it. That's crazy. Now, even so, even if you're over there, and even if you get what I just said, and wow, it is, it is, it is it's really crazy. There's some wrong attitudes we can have when we come into reading the Bible, even if we believe God had something to do with it. So the first one, um, I, I guess I, I'm just going to divide it into one or the other. It's probably more complicated than this, but like, there's a way you can read it, and I'll, I'll say it's, it's kind of like a lawyer, okay? Um, no offense to lawyers. They're wonderful people, mostly. Um, <laughs> like a lawyer reading a contract like looking for loopholes, right? So a lawyer's job is to read a contract with a very critical eye, right? They're looking for um, language that can be, hmm, I don't want to say manipulated, but, you know, read in a certain light. They're looking for loopholes. They're looking for uh, wording that is advantageous to the client that's paying them money. They're trying to find ways to read it uh, that, that bend... The, the, the binding of the contract in the benefit of the person that they're working for. They're looking for mistakes. They're looking for language that's, mm, I don't know about that. I can, I, that can be interpreted a couple of different ways. Some of us read the Bible that way. Like you're trying to read it in such a way that benefits you in the way you want to live, Maybe. And, and I, I, by the way, I would say this is one, I don't, I don't want to, I'm not trying to like point out like you're, you're a terrible person or like you sit down like, you know, like, all right, God, here, here we go. I'm looking for loopholes in your word and I'm going to find them. You didn't write this good. Like, I'm not saying you have that attitude, probably. It's probably more of a, an unconscious thing that as you're reading the Bible, you're trying, and you read something that's maybe hard, you want to, it's almost an instinct. It's almost a knee-jerk reaction to say, ugh. Is there like exceptions to that? <laughs> can, I, can I like be, is there an asterisk somewhere that maybe, maybe that doesn't apply to me in my life, in my current situation? Like we don't mean to do it, 
But we kind of have that attitude, like a lawyer looking for loopholes. Um, if you come in with that attitude, you're going to read it in a certain way. You're going to have certain experience while you're reading it, and it's going to give you a different outcome coming out. Let me propose a different way. A different disposition, a different attitude that you could come in with that will change your experience while you're there and definitely change the outcome. Uh, do you remember... Think back with me to middle school. Let's, let's, do, let's do middle school. Let's do seventh, eighth grade. It's just I have some experience with this now. It's sixth grade too. We'll include sixth grade too. I keep forgetting that there... That my 13-year-old sat right there first service, and now, now that almost 12 is over here, this is, I have to be careful what I say. I'm not naming them, so you don't know who they are. Um, remember... Uh, in middle school, so here, I'm going to date myself. We used to do this thing. It's called, get this, we, <laughs> we used to pass notes to each other. Now, I say that and we can laugh, but like legit, they don't really do it anymore. <laughs> like, they just text each other. But we used to do notes. Now, think back to me. Remember with me what it was like walking down the hallway in middle school. Do you remember it? Do you remember what it smelled like? B.O weird food from the cafeteria. Do you remember? Come on, it's coming back. You remember this. You remember this. Walking by the science hallway, I always smell a little different. Like there's something about it, right? Remember this. Now think, imagine that one, you know, cute boy or cute girl was walking towards you and you had some feelings that you didn't understand yet, but you were like, oh, there they are. And remember that fateful moment when you'd be walking by, you know, with your books. If you're a guy, you carried them like this. If you're a girl, you carried them like this. You guys remember that? Um, and when the girl, for me, this is my, my experience, sorry. The girl would do this as they're walking by and hand you a note. Do you remember that? Do you remember the feeling you had when you got that thing? Especially if you like weren't quite sure that they liked you, but you are hoping that they liked you. And you were like, this thing that you just got in your hand is so important because it's going to tell you some things, right? Do you remember opening it up? You couldn't open it up right there. You really wanted to. You wanted to open it as you're walking, but you didn't want to see it while we're eager, so you were kind of playing it cool. You're going to wait until you got to the next class, and you sat down and maybe opened up a little secret. Like, but do you remember how you read that thing? Every detail you read into, right? What did it, how did it start? When it said, hey, in the, in the beginning, how many E's were in the hey, right? One E, don't like you. Two E, hmm. But over threes, hey, you knew that was something, right? The eyes, do they put a little dot or did they put little hearts for the eyes? Do you remember that? That means something, right? And then like when they closed it out, did they put love and then their name? And then you're even wondering like, do they mean like love, love? Or do they just put in there? Like, what does that mean? And then even how they folded it, you'd read into that too, right? Because you do the standard like rectangle and then you could do the, the football, which I never knew how to do. And then there was even some like origami type stuff that you could do. And like, okay, if they folded it that complicated, they spent that much time, that must mean something, right? You read into all of these details. And what was the real question you were asking? The question you were asking is what is their heart? What's their heart towards me? That's what you wanted to know, right? And even when they would, if, if you would have some kind of requests made in that note, you would be like, I want to do that. Actually, I want to do whatever they're telling me to do over and above it because I want them to like me and I want, I like them and I want to, I want to be in this relationship, right? If they told you not to do something, you're going to like really try to avoid that. Oh, I don't want to talk to her. She doesn't like it when I talk to her. I'm not going to talk to her anymore. Like there were all those things you went over and above because you asked that question, what? What's their heart? So what if, what if when you read the Bible, you read it like that? Not the lawyer, but the middle school lover. <laughs> Reading the letter, asking one question. What's God's heart? What if you asked it like that? What if that was the running question as you read the Bible? And I know it's not always going to be easy. Some of it, you're going to ask the question, you're going, I don't know what your heart is in this. But what if that was the question that you just continually asked? What's your heart here? What's your heart? Don't you think, can you just imagine reading it like that and seeing how that will cause you to read it different? That when you sit down, your attitude and the way you think about it will change. And then probably your actions coming out will be different too. I think it's an interesting way to look at it. Now, 
there's a couple of assumptions I want uh, to give you here. I don't, <laughs> so far I haven't told you how to read it necessarily yet. I'm proposing that you should read it asking that question, but there's some ways I look at it. Um, I suppose it might be helpful for you to know that I'm, I'm over here. Uh, I live here. Uh, I'm on the God breathed, God inspired. I believe God inspired the Bible. Um, I don't come up here telling you my ideas. I try to find what I want to present truth that I find in the Bible and present it to you um, faithfully. So I believe that. Now there's some things that I've seen in the Bible that I think you have to um, latch onto those things in order to read the rest of the Bible right. So here is my first assumption. It's an assumption about the Bible from what I found in the Bible. Number one, uh, God loves you right where you are. Now you gotta get this. Because if you don't get this, if you don't come in with that assumption, you're gonna read and you're gonna read some things wrong in there. So you have to come in with the assumption, God loves me right where I am. Right where you are. And that's, sometimes that's, you ever have a hard time believing that? Because I'm not saying that God loves some future version of you. You know that version of you that you really like? It doesn't exist, but you really like that version of you that's super disciplined and, and, and you know, future forward and, and, you know, they're charismatic and people like them, like that version of you that you imagine in your head and that you talk about in January when you're trying to do all your, your, you know, your resolutions that you've already forgotten about because it's March already. We don't do, we're done with those already. But like, you have that in your head, that future version of you, that future good version of you. You think God loves that person, but I'm telling you, God loves you right now, even even worse, that God loves you at your worst. At your worst. I mean, I don't know where you're at right now on that spectrum, how close you are to the ideal version of you or the bad version of you. I don't know where you're sitting at feeling right now. But like, I don't care what you brought in here. God loves you right here, right where you are. I don't, I don't care what you did last night or a couple of nights ago when it was, when was St. Patrick's Day. It doesn't matter. I don't, I don't care about that. It, it doesn't even matter like why you're here. He loves you right where you're at. It doesn't even matter. You could be over here. You, you could be this person who doesn't even believe that the, that the Bible is real, that maybe doesn't even believe that God is real, and yet God still loves you there. You don't even have to believe. God loves you right where you are. I, I found it in there. It's in there. You need to get that. Now, there's a second part to the truth. It's that God loves you right where you are, and, 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 he loves you way too much to leave you there. That's true as well. They're both true. They're both true. That he loves you right where you are, exactly where you are, and he loves you way too much to just leave you there. He wants to change you. He wants to, to help you get better. He wants you to live inside of the purpose that he has for you, inside of the way he wants you to live. He wants you to get better. And I know sometimes that can feel like a tension-filled thing, that he loves me right where I am, but he loves me way too much to leave me there. That can feel like you almost want to live in one or the other sometimes, right? Sometimes it's really nice to just sit and say, God loves me right where I am, and I want to do what I want. Or other times, it's the guilt-inducing, God loves me way too much to leave me here, I'm a pathetic worm, and I need to get better at everything, and you kind of lean this way. But they're both true at the same time. You've got to hold both truths in tension. He loves you right where you are, and he loves you way too much to leave you there. I think if you're a parent, this is the one where you can kind of look, and you generally would say that you feel this way about your children, right? You don't do it as perfect as God does, but you know that you love your children right where they are, despite all of their flaws, all of them. Um, and <laughs> you love them way too much to leave them there. Both are true. And that's true of you and, and God. Now, so I'm trying to today, if you're a type A logical thinker, I'm trying to like build an argument. So you probably love this because I'm going from A to B to C to D and you're, you're loving that I'm going in steps. If you're more of a free thinker, you're like, what is this guy doing? It's boring. So I'm trying to build something here. Here's my... Here's my other assumption, and this, is, this, one, this one is a leap for some of you. I'm guessing that if you're in this church, for the most part, you're with me in general. You might have some details here and there. You're like, I don't know about that. But like, the whole God loves me right where I am, and God loves me way too much to leave me there. I'm guessing you're probably there. You might argue over the details of 
what he wants to change about you. But I'm guessing up until this point, you're generally with me. This one's going to be a leap. So here's another assumption I have. Over a loving God, a loving, all-knowing God, a loving, all-knowing God who created the universe and created you, down to the DNA. Here's how I view the Bible. The Bible is an invitation to live in harmony with the way God created the world. Let me say that again. The Bible is an invitation from God to you to live in harmony with the way he created the world to work. And what I mean is physically and spiritually. He created the world to work in certain ways. And he had certain ideas of how it was going to work. And he created the world to work in those ways. And when he writes the Bible, he's telling us, hey, this is how this works. This is the best way to live. This is the way that if you live this way, you're actually, you're not out of sync. The physical and the spiritual are going to work together if you live this way. If you don't live this way, it's like two frequencies that are all jumbled and it's going to, it's going to cause friction in your life. That the physical and the spiritual will be in, in friction and tension and it's going to cause pain in your life if you don't live in harmony with the way he's created it. It's going to cause problems, long-term pain, friction in your relationships. It's an invitation from God to live in harmony with the way he created the world to work. Um, do you... No, that's mean. Don't say that. It's like... Somebody told me first service, it was people squirming. I was like, all right, I got to find a better way to communicate it. It was too hard. No, I'll say it. <laughs> Love this. You're watching this. Okay, are you, you're not, you're not like smarter than God, right? That's such a jerk way to go about it. Okay, yeah, I'm going to do it anyways. You're not smarter than God though, right? Like nobody would say that. Nobody would be like, yeah, it's me. I just happen to be smarter than the creator God of the universe. Somehow he created me and I am yet smarter than him. Like nobody would say that. But we kind of act like it sometimes, right? So here's, this is what I want you to know. And this, this is the one where I'm pushing it here a little bit, but I just got to tell you this. If you read the Bible and you really only want, you, like your attitude, and maybe this isn't you, but if you have this attitude that I'm going to do the parts of the Bible that I agree with and I'm going to not do the parts of the Bible that I don't agree with, um, I just want to say, Do you, realize what that, do you realize what that means? Essentially, you've placed yourself above it, deciding what's good and what's not good in it, emptying, of its, emptying the Bible of its ability to speak to you, and if you really think, if you really think like, hey, um, I'm going to do what I want in here and what I agree with. I'm not going to do what I don't want and what I don't agree with. Do you know that really what that means is um, your God functionally is you? I mean, do you realize that? That like really, if you're sitting there saying, I agree with that, I don't agree with that, that's right, that's wrong. Ooh, that, that, that definitely just had to do with our culture there and that. Like if you're doing all of that all of the time with the kind of that attitude that I'm going to decide what is in here is good and I'm going to decide what in here is bad, then you're God. And I would just suggest, I don't know that you need to read it anymore. <laughs> like you just do you, man. Like that's, you might as well because that's what you're doing anyways. There's, a, there's an inherent uh, humbling that has to happen for you to read the Bible and say, you know what? There's parts of the Bible that I don't understand. Maybe a vast majority of it they don't understand. And there's parts of it that I like, I wanna say like don't agree with. There's parts of it that are really like out there. And I'm like, I don't know. But here's the deal. If you really believe that the all-knowing creator God of the universe wrote or, or inspired a book wouldn't you expect there to be some parts that you don't understand? Like, actually, I'd be a little nervous if I was like, okay, that was easy. <laughs> like, that'd be weird, right? Wouldn't you expect for a creator God to say some things that you'd go, mm, I don't know if I agree with that. Like, of course, there's going to be some stuff in there that rubs you the wrong way, that, that's a little bit beyond you, that maybe is going to require some time. 
for God to teach you the truth of it because maybe it's deeper than just a surface level thing that you're rejecting out of hand because you can't get it in the first couple of minutes of reading it. That's kind of an arrogant stance. You wouldn't read a physics book that way. Oh, I didn't understand it. must be stupid. Like, no, you'd assume you were stupid, right? Why do we do that with the Bible? Oh, I don't get it. Screw it. Like, no, keep going. If you come in with the attitude, man, this is a God, man, God is above me. God is, God is smarter than me. I know that there's some, even some ways of thinking that I have right now that he wants to get after, then man, the Bible can do some things. You know, it's, there's this verse in there that talks about the Bible being living and active. That it's not just that you read the Bible, the Bible reads you and it does something in your heart. Now, when you read it, depending on which part, I highly recommend if you're just starting to, to start in the New Testament, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, stories about Jesus, I'd start there. Don't start in Genesis. It'll be really cool for a while, and then you hit Leviticus, and you'll quit. So don't do that. Start in the New Testament if you're going to read. Um, but here's the deal. There's parts of the Bible that are just stories, you know, so you, and there's lessons in those stories. I mean, we're doing, going through Nehemiah, and we're, 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 we're getting lessons out of the stories, but um, there's parts of the Bible that are very, uh, the big word for it is didactic. They're teaching. Um, Jesus does a lot of these. You're going to read it, and you're going to go, oh, crap, I don't live like that. You're going to read a lot of it. Can I show you some stuff? I want to, and most of it's just most of it's Jesus. But but I just want to show you a couple of things. The Bible is just a, just a handful of things that it says. Uh, it, the Bible says that you are supposed to love your enemies. How you doing? Can you think of them? Or you got a list? You got a list? Do you love them? What does that mean? Oh, really, lawyer? Are you looking for some loopholes already? (laughs) How about that, right? You are, aren't you? Here, let me give you another one. Pray for your enemies. Pray for them. No, not like that. (laughs) It's not what it means. Ooh, here's another one. You know there's an actual verse that says, rejoice always. (laughs) Here's another one. Be grateful Here's another one. Count it all joy when you experience trials. All joy? Here's another one. Don't look at a woman with lust in your heart. Same as being guilty of adultery, spiritually speaking. Here's another one. Don't worry. There's a perfect example of how we read it with like a lawyer. Well, does it, what, what does that mean? It means don't worry. You're supposed to do something else instead. Pray, by the way, it's pray. Philippians 4, you should read it. It says don't judge. So even if you didn't worry and you were looking at the person next to you who does struggle with worry and then you judge them, you failed then, right? Don't gossip. That even means about the pastor after church. Just kidding, I don't care. (laughs) Treat others the way you want to be treated. here's, Here's, we'll end with this one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. All of it. All of you. Love him. Love him. You're going to read it and you're... <laughs> I would say maybe the majority of the time you're going to feel what, what the Bible would call conviction. That you're not living up to the thing that the Bible says to do. You're not the person the Bible says you should be. And in that, you have one of two directions you can go. I think a lot of people go to this idea that then I just need to do better. 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 I'm going to suck it up. I'm going I'm to get a journal. I'm going to wake up earlier. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do all those things. It doesn't work. I skip to the end. You go through that cycle of I'm doing better. I suck. I'm doing better. I suck. The other way to go, and really what Jesus was trying to do, and actually the, where he said a lot of these things specifically, you know how he ends that sermon? It's called the Sermon on the Mount. You know how he ends it? Literally the, <laughs> the punchline. You are to be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. That was his line at the end. I feel real 
built up right now with that one? That's what I'm supposed to be? Yeah. But this is where the Bible flips and it does this amazing turn because Jesus was trying to get you to see that you're not good enough, that you can't do it. You're supposed to read that a little bit and not be like, all right, I'm going to do that. You're supposed to read it and go, oh crap, I can't. I can't do it. That's actually supposed to be your reaction. That's why the way he wrote that, the way he preached that was to get you to say, holy crap, I can't do that. Because the essence of the gospel is that you can't live up to what God, the standard that God has, that you can't be perfect, that you can't climb your way to God. You can't do it. That is why Jesus came. See, we always talk about the good news. And if you grew up in church, you know that the gospel means good news. And it's the good news that Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sins. And that he rose from the dead three days later, right? That's the good news. But in order to have the good news, you need to understand the bad news. And the bad news is that you needed him to do all that. (laughs) That you weren't good enough. That you couldn't climb your way to heaven. That you couldn't earn God's good grace. You, You needed Jesus to die for you. You needed that. So the the predisposition, the attitude of the Christian as they approach the Bible is that I'm not good enough. I can't live the way you want me to live. (laughs) But I'm blown away that you love me anyways. So back to Nehemiah. Back to Nehemiah. These people are standing there And Ezra is just reading the Bible to them. And they just, all around the room, just start to break. They start to break. Why? Well, the context is so important. Do you realize that the people of Israel had been in exile for 150 years? 150 years. But they hadn't lived in what's called the promised land. Instead, they were living in a city a thousand miles from where God was promised them. A thousand miles from God is where they were living. And they weren't living at all the way they were supposed to. They were doing what they wanted to do. They were following their own desires. God wasn't really on their radar. They were far from God. And they didn't clean their life up and they didn't fix things and they didn't get, get everything together and, and start praying and reading their Bible. They didn't do any of that stuff. And yet God brought them back to the capital city of the promised land. They didn't deserve it. And they're standing here in this, in this city and they're looking around and they're seeing the walls are built and the gates are hung and the city's being restored. And they know, they know that they don't deserve any of it that they didn't do anything to earn this, that God, they weren't living the way God wanted them to live at all, that God pursued them. God brought them back without them cleaning up their life first. But they were a thousand miles from God and he went and got them and brought them back, enabled them to rebuild the walls and they're standing in the goodness of God and Ezra starts reading the Bible and they just break, not because they feel bad because they weren't doing all those things, but because they knew that God was good to them even though they hadn't done those things. They're standing in the goodness of God when they didn't deserve it. And that is really the disposition you should have when you approach the Bible. If you know, Christian, that Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sin, when you read it and you read some stuff that's in there that maybe you don't really want to do, the disposition is not Uh uh-oh, I better do that or God's not gonna love me. No, it's, oh my gosh, he loves me anyways and I'm still not doing that. And that is supposed to draw you in. That works. Listen, I could try to guilt you into living right and I know guilt will work for a while. I could guilt you into doing some stuff. I know how to do it. I grew up on it. I I have some ways, okay? But I think it has a short shelf life. I think the real thing that will enable you to live the way God wants you to live is if you fall in love with him if you're blown away by the goodness of God in your life and you realize that God is good to you despite you. And the more you get that, the more you're gonna live for him. It's his kindness that draws us to repentance. It's his kindness and his goodness. So, hey, we're, um, 
we're going to take communion today. Hopefully you got it on the way in. If you didn't get a little juice thing with the cracker thing, um, raise your hand. We got some people who will bring it to you if you want to take it. Uh, so here's what communion is. Communion is, uh, worship team, you guys can come up here and get ready. Communion is uh, a physical symbol of a spiritual truth. Uh, Jesus had this, this supper the last night he was, uh, before he's crucified, he has this, this last supper and he takes bread and he breaks it. And it's a physical symbol. He says, hey, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he takes the wine and he said, hey, this is my blood, which is spilled for you. And the beautiful part is he's doing it in a room full of people who are either going to betray him or abandon him in the next couple of hours. And he's telling them, hey, this is how much I love you. You're not gonna do anything right here. You're screwing, you're, you're, this is gonna be the worst night of, of like Peter's, this worst night of Peter's life. And Jesus is saying, I love you anyways. I'm about to go die for the thing you're about to do. So what communion is supposed to be is a time where you approach God with that humble gratitude that I can't believe you love me. I can't believe you did that for me. So here's what we're gonna do. We're just gonna take a couple of minutes. They're gonna, they're gonna uh, sing a song here. I want you to just have a moment with God. You and God, listen to the words of the song. Take a moment. Ask him for forgiveness for the things you've been doing. Uh, he'll, he'll bring that stuff to the front of your mind. That thing that you know you need to, you need to say, Lord, I'm, I'm sorry. Tell him how grateful you are for what he's done. And then take that bread, take that juice and remember what he did for you. Pray with me, Jesus. I pray for the person right now who's drawn to you. In this moment, Lord, they're, they're, they feel drawn to you. But maybe something, something's in the way. Something's blocking them from you. Lord, I pray that they would know that that thing, whatever it is, you paid for it. And they're forgiven. All they gotta do is ask. That what you did on the cross is powerful enough to pay for anything. Pray that they'd be blown away by that. Lord, I pray for the Christian who's been a Christian for 40 years that they could feel this truth today. Not just, not just go through the motions, not just break the little cracker and drink the little juice, Lord, but they would feel what you did for them on that cross. Pray for the ability to connect with it, Lord. Help us to approach you in the right way, Lord. Thank you for what you did on that cross what you did three days later. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.